Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. This week, my mother and mother-in-law came to visit on different days. Uh, One was a planned visit and one was a spontaneous visit. My mother-in-law, her visit was spontaneous, so my wife Josie, she sent me a heads up about 30 minutes before. My mom, on the other hand, was planned. I knew about her coming for a while, and because my mom's visit was planned, we planned. We planned dinner reservations. We planned a visit to the conservatory. I did everything I could to clear my Saturday. That's the impact of a planned visit. That's the impact of a planned visit. Though it's in the future, the impact of a planned visit flows back into time today. And this, friends, is the heart of Advent. Advent is a season when we meditate on the two comings of Jesus. His first coming, but also His next coming. And the word that the apostles used for this coming is parousia. That's for fruit. <laughs> But get used to this word. It's a, it's a very important word in your New Testament Bible. And this Greek word was used to describe in the ancient culture a planned visit from a distant leader. Parousia. I like to think of President Obama's visit to Clintonville when I hear this word. Years and years ago, when the president visited Columbus to speak in somebody's backyard, that somebody clearly received news of his parousia, his future coming. And here's the thing, I don't know this family personally, but I am assuming they at least mowed their backyard. (laughs) They probably cleaned their bathroom, if not a full-on renovation. Well, on a smaller scale, this is what you and this is what I do. Every single time I hear about a friend coming to visit, every single time I hear about a family member coming to visit, the certainty of their visit impacts what I do today. Their planned parousia impacts our day in and day out this very moment. Now, think about the parousia of Jesus. His certain coming must change the way we live today. It must. But how so? Well, the answer to this, we are going to look at a passage in John's first letter, 1 John. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28 this morning. 1 John chapter 2. Starting in verse 28, John gives, I think, a one-word answer to this question. How does Jesus' sure future coming impact my present day? And this one word, as we'll see from John the Beloved, is abide. 
We're going to unpack what it might look like to abide this Advent. But before we do that, let me read the text. You can follow along as I read. We'll pray for God to show. Again, chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him. So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. And there's that word, friends. Parousia. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Continuing to chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, not if He appears, when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies Himself as He is pure. So Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock, our redeemer, and Lord, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts so that we would actually see Jesus through your word preached this morning. Would this be a supernatural time in which you transform us with your word, the power of your word? You call us, you say that we are your children, and as John says, so we are. That is the power of your declarative word. And so as you, we hear your word declared this morning, would it indeed do what it sets out to do? We ask this in Jesus' name, and we ask it expectantly. Amen. A number of years ago, I read a book on spiritual formation that challenged me to wait patiently in the grocery line. Maybe you've read this book. It didn't work. It didn't work for me. Because when I'm grabbing groceries at the grocery store, I scan the checkout lines to find the shortest one. And then when I commit to that line, if I see one moving faster, I just move to that line as well sometimes. (laughs) And if I get stuck in line, what do I do? What do you do? Well, I'll tell you what I do. It looks like that. (laughs) I pull out my phone. (laughs) Uh, Five years ago, a well-researched study, and I'll quote, found that 62% of people waiting used their cell phones to pass the time. 55% of them initiated use within 10 seconds. Now, I'm firmly in both of those percentages, are you? I'm firmly in those percentages. And in fact, when I read that, I think the numbers are low, don't you? I think it's, I mean, if I went to Chipotle on 5th, I feel like it's 100% if you round up. You know what I mean? Just look. Just look at the line. You have to look up from your phone to look at the line. We all hate to wait. We all hate it. And so we will distract ourselves from the discomfort of waiting. And according to a professor at Georgetown, Cal Newport, companies know this. Companies on your phone know this. And he calls them attention economy companies who, and I'm quoting, play your brainstem like a harpsichord. They know that we just don't like to wait. And so our attention 
goes to so many other things to distract. And if this is true about waiting in a grocery line, just think about how much harder it is. Just think about how much harder it is to wait on the promises of God. Every day, we are confronted with brokenness. And we are either aware of it, alert to it, eyes open to it, or distracting ourselves from it. And if we do the daring, audacious thing, which is to not be distracted by the brokenness that comes at us and comes from within us, if we audaciously become aware of these things, then I think it becomes harder and harder to live in light of His promises. Because His promises feel so distant. This time of year, we feel the sting of grief, I think, and loss more than any other time of the year. This Thanksgiving, as my family was sitting around a table the night before Thanksgiving, um, I had to hold back tears, and unsuccessfully in a moment, because how much I longed for my dad to be at that table. I looked at my boys who were older. I imagined him just feeling delight at their growth. And I was glad, actually, that God gave me the freedom to feel that grief in that moment because my default, friends, is distraction. I hate to wait. I know, I know God's promises to make all things new. I know that promise. I know He will resolve everything that's messed up in a way that satisfies. I know that at the core of my being. But waiting for that, day in and day out, that is the hard part. Tomas Halik, he's a Czech theologian. And I've shared this before, but he argues that atheism is not so much a lack of belief as it is a lack of patience. Here's how Ben Myers summarizes his thought. The real difference between faith and In atheism, is patience. Atheists want to resolve doubt instead of enduring it. Faith is a patient endurance of the ambiguity of the world and the experience of God's absence. Faith is patience with God. And friends, if faith is patiently waiting, Truth is, we struggle to wait, though. We struggle to wait on God to resolve. We struggle to wait on God to restore. We struggle to wait on God to redeem all that is broken. If you are new to the church this morning, if you are new because you're checking out Christianity, you have got to know this, and you have to know it clearly at the beginning. Christians, Jesus' followers, struggle. Jesus' followers struggle with the brokenness of the world, just like you do. And following Jesus doesn't remove that struggle. In many ways, it makes it pain even more. Because we want it to happen. And do we experience substantial hope? Yes. And does that matter? Yes. But it does not take away the struggle. So what do we do until that day? That's the question I want to explore this morning with you all. How do we actively wait? How do we faithfully wait? How, yes, do we patiently wait? Well, John, as I said, gives us a one-word answer, and it's his favorite word. For John, 
This word is what it means, I think, to be a Christ follower. Not one who's always victorious. Not one who's always happy. Not one who always has the answer. No, for John, one who follows Jesus is one who abides. Abide. Take a look if you have your Bibles open or you can look at the screen at verse 21. 8, 28. John writes, And now little children abide. Abide. Abide in Him. So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. So for John, because Jesus is surely, this is a when, not if hope that John is modeling for us. When Jesus appears, when Jesus comes, because of this sure hope, what do we do today? We abide today. It's a one-word answer to the question, what do we do in that long stretch, in that agonizing patient stretch? What do we do? We abide. But what does it mean to abide? I've been actually trying to come up with an easy way to teach this this morning. I have to admit it's pretty difficult because abiding is, if you think about it, a life-encompassing image. It doesn't really fit well into a checklist. Abide, I think, asks more of us than rule-following or accurate theologizing. It kind of asks more of us, doesn't it? Abide. I would ask you to consider what that word means to you right now. Abide. I'm wondering if what you're thinking of is more of a feeling. Abide. I'm wondering if what you're thinking of right now is more of an emotion. It's more of a hard to define thing. As John, as John Scholar a scholar who studies John, those people exist. Rodney Reeves. As he puts it, the ministry of John always requires our imagination. If you've read his gospel, you know this. If you've read his letters, you see this. If you read Revelation, yes. John, as a pastor, he requires of his church imagination. And Rodney Reeves writes this. There are two kinds of Christians, list makers and storytellers. Answering one question reveals the difference. What does it take to be a Christian? List makers will talk about doctrines you must believe or commandments you must keep. As long as you believe the right things or do the right things, that's what makes you a Christian. Storytellers, on the other hand, will say, let me tell you about my grandma. To the question, what is a Christian? And I think abiding does not really fit into the checklist Christianity, does it? Because abiding is relational. Rodney Reeves here, he actually defines abide as both a place and an attitude. Isn't that good? Abiding is both a place and an attitude. Like the phrase, at home. At home is a GPS coordinate. It's a place. But at home is an attitude, isn't it? And so to abide in Jesus is to be at home with Him. Jesus is not just a sort of distant Savior or 
the answer to a philosophical question in a theology, a theology textbook. Jesus is with abiding your friend. Your closest friend. Abiding is relational, it's holistic as well. So if you have your Bibles, you could look in chapter 2, verse 6, and we probably get the closest thing to John's definition of abide. He writes to his church, he, he says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So abiding is walking like he walked. And you may know this, but in the ancient world, walking wasn't just some kind of, you know, your gait. No, walking was a catch-all for the totality of who you are. It's like the essence of your being. Your whole way of being was, was wrapped up in this word, walk. My home group, we're reading Michael Hendricks' book, The Other Side of Church. And at our group, someone pointed out how Michael Hendricks defines spiritual formation and remarked about how beautiful of an articulation this is. And I'll just put it on the screen for us. Spiritual formation is when we react to life like Jesus does. We value what He values. We treat people the way He treats people. And I would argue this is a wonderful definition of a Bible. If John says abiding is walking as He walked, this is a, an amazing way to sort of flesh out what it would look like to abide with Jesus. To we walk with Him. We go where He goes. We imitate Him. We ponder Him. We relish the reality that He is among us, that He is with us, that He is by the Holy Spirit closer than we realize. At every given moment, we don't just receive His salvation in the mail. We don't just ponder His salvation from afar. We receive His touch. We hear His voice. We experience His presence. This is an inside-out relationship. It's holistic. Abiding. It's also, friends, and this is so important, mutual. We don't just abide with Jesus because then we'd be misreading John. John has every bit as much to say about how Jesus first abides with us. Sometimes walking with Jesus must feel the way that my dog walks with me when I'm on a rush. And just kind of like behind me, trying to keep up, wanting to sniff a bunch of stuff over there. And that's sometimes how walking with the Lord can feel like. It's like Jesus is way over there, and I'm kind of right here, you know, getting dragged along. And that's not at all what a body looks like. Because the image that John gives us is that Jesus is at home with us. If abiding is being at home with Jesus, then the same is true with Him. In fact, if we were to do a simple word search for the word abide in 1 John alone, this is what we would find. A lot, right? John likes the word. I told you, he likes the word. And I counted, that's 19. 19 instances of the word abide. Now here are the times that we are called to abide in Him. Nine. Here are the times. Well, if you were to look at the other. 
Those are all the times in which God is doing the fight. That's more than half, friends. So in John's imagination, in John's teaching, the beloved, right? The beloved disciple who has experienced leaning on Jesus. He knows what it feels like to lean on Jesus, to know his, his belovedness. He is telling us something. To abide in Jesus is to recognize that Jesus abides with us more. Jesus is way more faithful to us than we would ever be to him. I want to say this clearly. If abiding is us being at home with Jesus, then you must know it is also Jesus at home with you. Do you believe that? Honestly, do you believe that? A lot of the messaging that we tell ourselves and that we hear teaches abide in Jesus and then maybe, possibly, God will abide with you. And then when you screw up, God is not at home with you at all and leaves. And then you have to sort of abide with him some more and then he might come back if you're lucky. Jesus says, I abide with you. I love being with you. I am not only near to you, I love being near to you. I am at home with you. In fact, the very reason I came was to be near and to be at home with you. To redeem me, to rescue you, so that, so that you can have fellowship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's, that's why He came. And now, on the other side of that, what do we do? We abide with Him. So friends, this is how you wait, this is how you abide. And John, I think, tells us from the passage we just read, two things that could flow from this abiding. And the first is that it's confidence. So abiding with Jesus gives you confidence. And this confidence that we read about in 1 John is both a future confidence and a present day confidence. And so if you look again at verse 28, we hear about the future confidence that we have from abiding. Abiding in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him. Abiding with Jesus means we also, though, have confidence today. And John makes sure that we knows, know this in other parts. So 1 John 5, verse 14, to pick one example of two. And this is the confidence that we have towards Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And so John expects that abiding with Jesus engenders and gives us a confidence. Now the Greek word for confidence is defined by one scholar this way. It was the appropriate word, quote, to use of the entire freedom with which intimate friends unburden their hearts to one another. Think about that. In fact, often the word for confidence in the Greek was used in context to free speech. Free speech. Maybe you've been around people you don't trust, and so what do you do? You filter your words, don't you? You don't speak freely. And if our words are just such an intimate sort of partnership with who we are, then what we're doing when we filter our words is we filter ourselves. You're guarded with other people. 
according to John, when we abide in Jesus, and more importantly, when He abides in us, we get confidence. We can actually be truly, fully ourselves. We have confidence. We can speak where we are, what we're feeling. To Him, He is safe. Confidence in verse 28, going back to that verse, is depicted as running towards Jesus instead of shrinking back. When I was dating Josie, we spent most of our time apart, and so we got to know each other through emails, through cell phone calls, through snail mail even, and that in a sense was like a long distance abiding. And then when I finally did see her on the weekends, I wouldn't like shrink back when I saw her. Because of all that abiding through the week, I would run towards her. So in, in a sense, this is the posture we will all have towards Jesus, right? Verse 28 makes total sense to me. If you spend your days getting to know Jesus and, and sharing your struggles and your sins with Him too, by the way. But you spend your days getting to know Jesus. When you see Him face to face, you will run towards this person, won't you? Not a way. Abiding gives you that confidence. And that's not it. But also likeness. Abiding gives us His likeness. The likeness of Jesus. When you abide with Jesus, He abides with you. You experience transformation. That's the promise of Scripture. Change. Isn't that what we all want this morning? We want change. We want real change. And not just any change. Because any change is easy. No, change towards beauty. Change towards freedom. Change towards, friends, the likeness of Jesus. That's what we honestly all long for. And that's what's promised. Look at verse 29 now. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then later in verse 3, the same thing essentially is said about purity. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so what's this? Jesus is righteous, and because of that, we practice righteousness. Jesus is pure, and because of that, we purify ourselves. One sign that we are abiding with Jesus, and he is abiding with us, we start to look more and more like Jesus, his righteousness and his purity. Which, I have to say, is beautiful. I had a teacher who liked to say, righteousness is beautiful. And this teacher had to say that because too often we think righteousness is ugly. And this teacher would often say, no, 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 no. Self-righteousness is profoundly ugly. Religious pride, there is no uglier thing than religious pride. But true righteousness. Like, have you ever met someone who's broken? Someone who's humbled by their sin, who knows their struggles? And it's just broken, like bottomed out broken, and yet, at the same time, reflects righteousness and purity. And the righteousness and purity of Jesus. Have you met someone like this before? That is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. It's so beautiful that when we see it, we doubt it, don't we? We're like, that's, that's impossible. But friends, that is what is at stake with spiritual formation. We are called... To abide with Jesus and thereby reflect the righteousness and the purity of 
Jesus to others. We don't practice righteousness. We don't practice purity to get God's abiding love. We, I mean, if we were to say that, John would interject at this very moment and say, Joe, stop it. You didn't read my letter. Look at verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it does not know Him. Now, we have been given, it says, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. So, we have been given the Father's love. Inside. Now, because we are known now, today. Because we are known and loved as children. Because we have security in our status and our experience. And so we are. Our experience and our as children of God, we are now free to please God. We are actually freed up, and we actually now desire to look like our older brother, Jesus. That's actually the miracle of salvation. We actually want to become more and more like Jesus. We long for it. And so what we see in these verses is less of a scary religious entrance exam and more of an invitation from our older brother who loves us and who abides in us, who's at home with us. This is an invitation to be more free, to be more alive, to be more redeemed in the person that you are called to be. It's an amazing invitation. A lot of people, I think, feel about the word righteousness and purity the same way that maybe a student feels about the LSAT or the MCAT. We obey in order to maybe possibly get accepted. But John would find this logic backwards. We are accepted. We are children. Therefore, we are invited to be changed by Jesus. He is at home. If we are children of God, if we are born of the Father, according to John, then we are at home with Him, and He is at home with us. That at-homeness cannot change. And friends, we won't actually practice righteousness. We won't actually pursue purity in our lives unless we first feel at home. Isn't that true? We are so at home that we're given a picture of the future. In verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. There's that word likeness. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. Not if, but when we see the face of Jesus, we will be transformed like Him. And so change and growth in the Christian life is becoming today what we will one day be. We are so at home, we are so at home in Jesus that this is a win, not if promise. And so today, we get to show ourselves, we get, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we get to preview that future day. We get to demonstrate and experience the preview of our future self. When we see Jesus face to face and are transformed by his face. And so, friends, the coming of Jesus, what we think about in Advent, is an invitation. Not just a feast like we talked about last week, it's an invitation to abide. Abiding is how we wait. How do we wait? We abide. I want to ask a few questions about our church. I want to ask what hope would look like if we were known for abiding in Jesus. 
I kind of wonder if people would see a community that talks about Jesus as if he were in the room. Or he sees, or this person might see a life of a Jesus follower talk about Jesus as if he were her friend. His companion at home with him. I wonder if, as a community, people would see a community that values transformation in the likeness of Jesus, that values that. Not just thinking correct thoughts about Jesus, which is so important if you think about it. If we're called to abide in Jesus, we need to get to know Jesus. As you would get to know a friend. The task of theology, the task of learning about the Bible, all of that is towards this end. Am I getting to know Jesus, my friend, and Savior? It's not so you master, it's not so you can control, it's frankly the opposite, so that you can be transformed into His likeness. A community, I wonder if people would see, that is beautiful, that is compelling, that is surprising, because righteousness and purity that is from Jesus is all those things. Waiting, friends, is hard. It is. When we wait by ourselves. But, friends, waiting, according to John, is abiding, which means we have Jesus. Waiting is abiding. And so, Lord, would we, this morning, perhaps for the first time, understand that all of life with you is one of abiding. One of exploring, resting, relaxing into being challenged by our at-homeness with you, Jesus, and, for, and your at-homeness with us. And would that transform us? Would that give us a confidence that can only be from you? And Lord, would that also give us a likeness that is only from you? And it's in your name for us. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.